Amen. We do want to uh, celebrate the goodness of God. And um, as we are beginning this process of uh, taking hands and partnering to a deeper way uh, with Union Presbyterian, not to embarrass them, uh, but uh, first of all, can you say, I just learned this, Ohio Gazimas? Ohio Gazimas? Would you mind standing, Union Press, so that we can say uh, welcome? All of you, do you stand so that we can welcome you and to say thank you? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful uh, people uh, that we uh, celebrate together. Uh, by the way, this is the first time that they have shut down their worship service. They've been going since 1918 and have uh, come to uh, worship. So we need to say thank you. What an honor to us that they have uh, been doing that. But... We're going to be meeting on uh, the 23rd of uh, November, 6 o'clock down at Union, and then on a Christmas Eve at 8 o'clock, and then uh, once in January, February, and beginning in March, we're going to be meeting weekly down there. So uh, it's, it's a great time to go down there and to celebrate. We're beginning a series of uh, three weeks of looking at the great commissions in the Bible. Next week, we're going to take a look at, of course, the commission to Joshua to go into the promised land. In two weeks, we'll be taking a look at the risen Christ telling His disciples, Go into all the world and make disciples of all the goyim, ethnoi, of all the nations of together. But this morning, we take a look at the commission of probably outside of Jesus of Nazareth. I believe the man that changed the face of the world more than anybody else. Abraham. Abraham is adored by the three great faiths of the West. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam as the epitome of faith. And his faith was not just some kind of naive, wishy thing, but born in a really tough life and through the sorrows and joys and struggles and was basically trusting God to leave everything and to follow. If you have your Bible, would you take it out and stand with me for the reading of God's Word and turn to Genesis 12. It's on page 8 in your pew Bible. Genesis 12, we'll read verses 1 through 9 together. This is this great story of where God tells him to go, and he's got to let go of everything in order to embrace the future. We'll read this together out loud if you're visiting as a sign of God's people. When we get done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you'll say, thanks be to God. So let's read these verses, one through nine. And as you read, listen carefully, you're reading God's word. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Abraham took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran. And they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent 
with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the bloom fades, but those words will last forever. Uh, this morning we're beginning a look at this first great commission. And anytime God tells you to go, you want to go. It's uh, interesting that, you know, a lot of times we don't recognize that other men and women, because they might belong to another clan or tribe, are great people of faith in Christ. Like they say that uh, Catholics don't recognize Greek Orthodox and Greek Orthodox don't recognize Presbyterians and Presbyterians don't recognize Baptists and Baptists don't recognize each other in the liquor store. (laughs) Probably the great power of Abraham's faith laid in the simple truth of his life. He thought God is able to do what God has promised. And his whole life, he'll go from stage to stage, growing in his faith all along the way. We don't really know for sure what Abraham's faith was, Abraham's, when he was in Ur. Ur was a really great city. It was a huge. Sargon the Great, the Akkadian king, one of the first leaders of civilization, was there. But we know that when God spoke to him, he obeyed. And it was the faith of Abraham to let him leave his past. Belair, so many of us are so stuck in the past the way we've always done it. And this morning on Ingathering Sunday, it's a way to be able to step forward to a new level of faith. Abraham's faith, though, didn't just let him get rid of the past, but to embrace his future. You know, a lot of people, and as I've told you before, one of the things I love about aging, other than looking and feeling horrible, is that you see how true the Word of God is. And I'm fascinated after leading four churches these last 30 years. Some people will go so far with God, but then they choke and they stop. And very often, the place that stops them the most is their wallet. And it's not about trying to bribe God or to somehow he's the big slot machine. You're going to make money off of him. God doesn't need our money. Someone said he has a really good cash flow. I don't know if you know that. But he knows that our hearts are wrapped around it. And Abraham not only left his past and embraced his future, but because when he offers to God his best, he's called the friend of God. Would you love to have God Almighty say, My daughter, my son is my friend. It's someone that means it's built on trust of a relationship. And Bel Air, with the mission that we've got, working with Union and other churches, with Young Nock the Korean and uh, Kenny uh, Bishop Ulmer down at Faithful Central and others, you take the crazy city we're in, you take the promises of God and you connect them by faith, and you watch the incredible things God will do in your life individually and as well as ours. Well, let's take a look, first of all, at this passage again. Turn with me back over to Genesis 12 on page 8. That Abraham's faith allowed him to leave his past. Actually, if you first look up in the 11th chapter in verse 31, it says that Terah took his son Abraham and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son's Abraham's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, the purpose was not just to leave Ur, but to go to the promised land. Haran is kind of a play on words. It means almost to hesitate, like if there's a city called Hesitation. And so Terah stops there, and he dies. And Abraham stays there. Now, a lot of us, you know, we'll go so far with God, but it holds us back. 
and the tragic might have been. Oh my goodness in life. You see these women and these men that were going to be, do really great things. But they stopped. I mean, they pulled out 50 yards before the end of a marathon race and they said, it's too much, God, take me out. And you know what happens with a church? And I've seen this time and time again. If a church, even in tough times, says, you know, when times get better, then we'll serve the Lord, a horrible thing starts to happen to them. You ever drive up here this little place called Donner Pass? Great family going in a wagon train coming out here to California to the gold mines. It started to snow and the wagon train talked the leader into waiting till that snowstorm passed. He wanted to try to go over the pass. The people said, let's wait for better weather. It snowed 22 feet. Record snowfall. And as they got stuck there through the entire winter, you know how they survived. They cannibalized each other. They ate their dead. And I have seen in more ministry than not, when there are tough times and the people say, well, let's just wait. Let's wait until good times and then we'll move ahead. You know what happens? They start to cannibalize each other. They start to say mean things about each other. They turn on each other, talk on each other, and they start to eat each other. Isn't that a lovely example? Okay, we're going to move along. So it's not just leaving Ur, it's getting to the promised land. Verse 12, or verse 1 in chapter 12. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abraham didn't have a clue where he was going. God just said, leave. You're going to see this with Joshua. God doesn't give Joshua a battle plan. He just says, go invade them. Joshua kind of goes, got any ideas where? The risen Christ, the great commission. Go into all the world. And they go, where's that? And Jesus said, go get them. God delights in you and me figuring out the plan with him. But it can't happen unless we go. You leave your country, everything that's familiar to you. You leave your kindred, all the people who know you, and you leave your very household, the security you have. And you pick up your tent and you move your tent and you follow me and I will bless you. And I will make you a blessing to others. And Abraham's got the guts, the gumption to go and do this. It's not just about getting the people out of the in Egypt when they're imprisoned under Pharaoh. It's to get them to the promised land. It's not just when you find out to find them to following Christ when Jesus heals the demoniac, the Gadarene in Mark. It's not just getting the demons out of him, but it says he was clothed in his right mind. It's not just Christ going to that cross and paying for my sin and yours and shedding his blood and his being alive and ascending. It's the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost and now Christ filling us. God doesn't want you to just quit being mean to people. He wants you to actually start being loving to them. A lot of us came to Christ because we had some problem. It was embarrassing. We had we were either doing the coke or the booze or some sexual addiction. We had a mean mouth. Or, you know, we just... And we wanted God to set us free from that. And He did. And then we stopped. And Jesus says, we're not done. I want you now to start being loving to others. It's not just about us getting freed from our sin. And the only way you can do that is with your finances. Now, again, I want to keep saying there are so many wacky charlatans out there on TV that all they're trying to do is get their money out of your wallet into theirs. But just because there are quacks in the medical world doesn't mean there's not good medicine. 
And just because there are people out there trying to use you for your finances doesn't change the truth. The greatest way for you to enjoy your money is to be a blessing to others. And I'll never tell you what to give. That is between you and the Lord. It's not my money. And I like to remind us, it's not your money either. God has loaned that to us for the sin. You know what I love about uh, Union Press, what uh, Pastor Messiah does? You know what they write down? Not a number. They write down a percent of what they're going to give that year. And showing what do they think. It's a thing about stewardship and moving ahead. I know some people that say 10% is legalistic. That's the Old Testament. Yeah, I agree. You start with 15%. (laughs) But it's whatever finding this sense of taking hands together. Until we let go of the past. Why do we think we can get along without honoring the Lord financial? A couple reasons. One, some of us trusted God in our life as something, and he so broke our heart. We said, God, this is our very heart, and he let it fall on the ground in front. We said, I'll never trust you again. Remember Dickens' great expectations, Mrs. Havisham? She fell in love, and on her wedding day, she was standing at the altar, and her lover never came. And her life stopped at that moment. And Dickens, in only the way he could describe it, she was sitting in her old wedding dress, now gnarled and wrinkled, a shell of a human being. And the wedding cake had molded and just the spider webs in the room. And she was alive, but she quit living when her lover left her. And some of us, something happened in our life. And we, and we quit living. We just stopped right there, just like at Heron. And God says to us, you need to pick up your tents and come this way. I understand I can take your hand and help. And when you let go, then God uses it. Moses has his staff to protect himself as a shepherd. And when God says, throw it down, then it becomes the rod of God. And he leads his people out of captivity with that way. Samson, he's surrounded by a thousand Philistines. He picks up the jawbone of a donkey. Slays a thousand people when the Spirit of God comes upon him. When he gives it over to the Lord. Peter... It's until Peter gets out of the boat when he sees Jesus walking on the water and scares him out of his bagels as he's sitting there. And he says, who is it? And Jesus says, it's me. And Peter said, big old Peter, open mouth, insert foot. He says, and let me come out. And Jesus says, Pete, come on out. Then he discovers the power of God. Paul said, one thing I do, one thing I do, letting go, leaving what is behind. And reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press forward towards the goal for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature, if you're an adult spiritually, be that way. So letting go of the past, maybe we got hurt, maybe we got wounded, maybe we just learned how to get along without trusting the Lord. The past is always with us, for good or bad. It's irrevocable, you can't change it. But it doesn't mean it's determinative. Just because it holds on in our memories, it doesn't mean that it has to keep holding us past. Back there holding us down. And the worst thing to do financially, by the way, is say, because I can't do everything, I won't do anything. These are tough times. Oh my goodness. Is this economy wacky? I tell you, and we have had a lot of people really take it seriously. And this is what I love about, though, having walked with the Lord these last 30 years. To watch God take care of you. These are times when you can really watch the Lord take care of you in weird ways. The first mortgage that Carol and I had in 1981, I just ordained, was an 18% mortgage. Because Prime was 21 back then. The misery index under those, well, those were fun times. And you see God be able to take care of you. Now, every time we give to the Lord and we write a check, 
I don't wake up in the morning and go, Carolyn, come outside. There's gold on our front steps. <laughs> no, no. Sometimes, you know, you don't get instant money that way. Sometimes you got to take the, you're going to buy a new sofa. You just flip the cushions over and look at the stains you used to look at four years ago. They're new stains now. And sometimes God takes you along. But it's being able to say, Lord, I honor you. That helps to let go of that past. There's a reason Jesus spends so much time talking about money. Because our hearts are wrapped around it. Next to the kingdom of God, it's his number two topic. There's a reason in the last days. What does the Antichrist have all power over? Economics. To buy and sell. Because of the power of what it has. And what God wants is he wants us to have this freedom in loving and helping others. To let go of the past and then to embrace the future. Look over here in chapter 13, verse 8. This pain in the neck nephew, Lot, who he takes along. Lot makes a bad decision. He thinks what it looks like wealth isn't. Look at verse 8. And now they're, they're fighting because they're, they're growing in their flocks. Have you ever noticed if you go into business with a friend, you don't start fighting until the business starts to make money? Then Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herders and mine, for we're kindred. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. Lot looked about him and saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated each from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the plain and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the people of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. What looks like apparent wisdom, like Lot's getting ahead, it's a bad deal. Abraham says, I'm going to let the Lord take care of me. You pick the best, you cherry pick anything you want, I'll go to the other place. Oh, this is such the way to live. If you take a toddler and you offer to them an ice cream cone or a check for a million dollars that could buy their own stinking Baskin Robbins, they'll take the ice cream cone. God says, you see what I do with that 90%? Or you can try it on your own with that 100%. It's a bad deal not to trust him. And so this apparent deal that Lot takes ends up being a problem to him. God makes a hole so that he can fill it. At creation, there was nothing. He spoke ex nihilo, the Latin for out of nothing. God lets Abraham leave and then he gives him the promise. He waits until Sarah's so old that the angel of the Lord visits her at the nursing home before she gets pregnant from Abraham. God has them leave. He has David after he's anointed running for eight years from Saul before finally he has peace. He has this young girl who is this virgin by the name of Mary, a young Jewish girl at her prayers and the Son of God is born through her. And until Paul lost everything, he says, I've lost everything and I count it as garbage for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. Then God gives his power. And when you come down here and that you make this commitment for this coming year, and you're making a hole. And by the way, if it doesn't cost you something, it's called tipping. A sacrifice is something where you say, I give. And God doesn't ask you to honor him with what you don't have. There's a line between faith and foolishness. Don't make some wild thing. God, I give a million dollars. Well, where are you going to get that? I don't know. Maybe I'll hold up liquor stores for Jesus. I have no idea. (laughs) 
well, you're going to find yourself in a bad situation. But we say, God, I want to honor you with this. And you are making a place for the Lord to take care of you. And so as Abraham finds out, and the problem with money is the power it has. Benjamin Franklin said, Who is rich? He that is content with what he has. And who is that person? I have not met the man yet. Unquote. Make money your God and it will haunt you like the devil, Carnegie said. Carnegie said if you died with money, you died poorly. He started the first foundation. But this crazy Scotsman was making so much money on his steel industry, he couldn't give it away fast enough. But he thought if you died with money, you died poorly. Interesting enough that... uh, the true wealth. Sir Isaac Newton, you know, there have been other bubbles like our housing bubble. There was a tulip bubble in Amsterdam in the 16th century. Everybody invested in it, crashed. Sir Isaac Newton bought into a company called the South Sea Company, lost everything he had made. And this is what he said, quote, I can calculate the motions of the heavenly bodies, but not the madness of people and their money, unquote. He couldn't understand that. Interesting new study has come out by Arthur Brooks, the professor of economics at Syracuse University and a visiting fellow from the American Enterprise Institute. He's been studying with this new global economy the nations that are happy or not. And what he's discovered, they've done this monster survey. They've asked people, are you happy or very happy? And he's discovered that money does bring happiness to the place of basic food or medical help. A very poor nation, when they make more money, they can finally get enough nutrition and medical help. They're happier than impoverished. But after that, a reverse thing takes place. In fact, he comes along and he says that in many countries there's evidence economic growth creates unhappiness. He cites America and France and Mexico. In 1972, 30% of Americans, if you ask them, said they were very happy. The annualized income at that place for an American was $25,000. In 2004, Americans' income went up 40% from 1972 to real-time dollars to the average of 38000 a year. 40% increase in happiness and, or in money and Americans' happiness went up to a staggering 31%. It should have been like 50% of America now has all this money should be happy. The French, who have three times the income of Mexico, they have 35% happy. Mexico has a staggering 69% of Mexican citizens say they are very happy. And here's his huge conclusion. Quote, the only reasonable conclusion is that Mexican happiness and French and American unhappiness are caused by a large measure of forces other than money, family, and faith, unquote. That because the church is so large in Mexico, that their family structure being together, that they perceive themselves much happier than Americans and the French. And in particularly in giving to others. And that's this beautiful thing about learning the joy of faith. The thing that makes us happy with money is not the pleasure. You know the difference between a $300 meal and an $800 meal in taste? $500. (laughs) At some point your palate can't taste anymore. The difference between really nice clothes and really bad clothes, the difference in how they feel is what you've decided whether it shows you're successful or not. It's a game. We're playing with Monopoly money. The trouble is, as someone recently who just won the uh, lotto said, quote, 
You know what God thinks of money because you look at the kind of people He gives it to. The wretchedness of being rich is that you have to hang with other rich people, unquote. (laughs) And what this dude was saying was, the very wealthy are some of the most miserable, demanding. They can't enjoy just seeing a movie or a simple meal or a walk on the beach anymore. It's all this game that it's a narcotic and they're locked into it. And that is very true. And so God calls us and tells us, money isn't bad in itself. It's the love, it's really the lust of money that somehow that's a false savior. And the thing that empowers us is when we give it to him. So not only did Abraham let him leave his faith and his past and embrace his future, but his faith let him give the very best to God. He, he gives to God, when he comes out, Melchizedek, who is the leader of Salem, Shalom, Jushiru Shalom, which will become, and he gives him 10%. But look, turn with me over last passage over to Matthew, the 7th chapter, page 788 in your pew Bible. Because Abraham's faith allowed him to give the very best, he was called the friend of God. In other words, someone God could trust. By far, always on survey after survey, what do Americans want the most outside of a happy family? They want a friend. And do you know how Americans define a friend? A woman or man I could trust. Interesting. Trust is at the basis of this. This passage, the golden rule, is born out of Jesus talking about prayer. Let's read verses 7 through 12 together out loud and see what Christ says here. Ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives. And everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And everything do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. Wow. What He is saying when God's love comes in. It takes all of our old categories and reworks them. Just like when you put the right program in, when you got a virus in your computer, it doesn't lose the information, it arranges it right. When you clean your house, and you can sit down, I remember both times we did this, <laughs> then all of a sudden that you enjoy it more. When you finally get all your receipts together because the IRS is telling you to do that, and you finally get it together, and you sit and you can enjoy. Jesus is saying, you who are evil, and you are, You know how to love your children. How dare you say of my father that he would play a trick on you? How dare you say of your God that he'd play some kind of shell game with you? You do to others like you want them done to you because this is how your heavenly father is treating you. God is loving you like he loves himself. And God comes and what happens when agape love comes in our love and as we give to the Lord That it rearranges and it recaptures all the broken desires and really sets them free. The line between giving and receiving the joy gets blurred. Who has more joy at a child's birthday party? The mother who picked out the perfect gift or the child who opens it? The answer is yes. Is it more fun to be able to take a friend and give them a ride to the airport because you've got some time? Or is it more fun to receive that ride? The answer is yes. 
unless you're going to LAX, and then you don't want that. Is it more fun? Who enjoys the kiss more, the husband or the wife? Kissing is a fascinating thing. The word to worship in the Greek, praskume, means to kiss forward. It means to offer love forward. I remember uh, the first time I was ever uh, really kissed by a man. Uh, we had a bus driver <laughs> in Israel. His name was Mohammed, big guy. And uh, we were driving, we were joking around. And he got off of the bus and he just picked me up and gave me a big kiss on the lips, you know. And I went, wow. Uh, I'm just so thankful Carolyn doesn't have a mustache. And... But you know what? There was nothing romantic in that. That was a friend kiss. Lip to lip. We have a lot of Russians now, you know, starting to attend here. You see a lot of these Russians down in Santa Monica. I mean, they give each other a kiss on the lips. There's nothing romantic about that. Or you watch a mother kiss her child. There's nothing romantic but that tender. Same, same deal. Lip to forehead, lip to cheek, whatever. Or you watch two lovers embrace. Some of you, if you come down here and you say, I'm going to commit this to the Lord, and you, proskume, you worship in saying, well, i got to give to God because I don't want to get in trouble when I meet Him. Well, that's okay. We'll still take your money. That's good. <laughs> kind of like kissing Grandma. You know, you got to do it. But, you know, uh... and that's a first step. That's all right. But some of you come and you say, well, I want to because you can help. You know, you gave over a million dollars last year in assistance and in short-term missions to going around the world and downtown and to help out. Do you know, to be able to give in that way, in that sense of a friend, you know, kissing, say, yeah. But some of us have learned the joy that the Lord, that when you say, and I wish I could just give it to you, but I can't, you got to discover it. To say, yeah, when you give to the Lord, you don't instantly have caches and gifts and prizes. But he gives you a peace, and he'll take care of you in the weirdest ways. It's one of the times you actually get to see the hands of heaven come through. And when you honor the Lord, you can have more joy eating at Denny's than at the chart house. That's an exaggeration. But <laughs> God will take care of you. I'm sure somebody here works for Denny's. But anyway, that the Lord lets us release us and sets us free. It's all about moving our tents. It's not about bribing or giving to God. And this is between you and the Lord. We're going to come forward. And it's time for some of us to, you know, let go of the past. You know all those dumb things you did with your sins and in my sins? I'm not just talking about my jerk phase. I mean my sins last week and yesterday. That when you come to Christ, they're forgiven. What He forgives, He forgets. Let it go. Some of us, we need to move to our futures. That's scary stuff. To walk where you don't know where you're going, but say, Lord, you take me by the hand. He says, we got a deal. I will. And some of us are going to come to that place where we can give to the Lord what you can honor him with. It's not what you don't have. It's what you do have. You know, if you have right there those, those cards, I want you to take those out right there in the back of uh, the pew there, those little white ones. And there are these little tiny cards here that as the Lord asks you to fill these out, that uh, you just put your name and what you think the Lord is asking you to give. It also has for some of your time as well. And if some of you want to really remain anonymous, don't put your name. Just tell us what you might be thinking. You know, you might fill this out for your neighbor. Surprise them what they're committing to uh, this next year. But I tell you this. Even if you give God 
nothing. He will always love you. But because He loves you, He'll say, trust me. Trust me. Let's pray, shall we? God, I thank You that we are such a blessed nation. Lord, we had to pick what clothes to wear out of our closets today. We have more food in our dry, air-conditioned, heated houses than we could eat in one sitting. Lord, we flush our toilets with drinking water. God, we are so blessed. And not because we're such hard workers or we so deserve it, but because, God, you have poured your bounty on us. And, Lord, we thank you for the chance to be able to help people, those kids on the street right now, Lord, to love our children, Lord, to come to our Sunday school and our elderly, Lord, to care for our students, to take hands with those downtown and around the world, and to give a cup of water and a warm meal and the good news of Christ to know what forgiveness is about. So, Lord, I pray right now you would move on everybody's heart and let them know. And, God, as we collect this together, may you be pleased to reveal what a trustworthy God you are. Lord, move our tents to the next place. In your name we pray. Amen.